0: This podcast is brought to you by Anise Kavanaugh, the author of a new book entitled, Contagious You. Unlock your power to influence, lead, and create the impact you want. Please listen to podcast number 753, where Anise and Greg speak about how great leaders enable and encourage positive and contagious energy, as well as why nourishing our internal state and our mental health needs to come first if we are to be effective leaders. Please join Greg and Anise in this wonderful interview and podcast number 753. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And <clears throat> I have joining me today from Colorado where he says it's actually snowing, which for somebody who's out here in California right now dealing with some fires, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh General Chuck Jacoby. Uh good day to you, Chuck. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Greg. And it's uh Really, a privilege to be uh, on one of your podcasts. They are well known and uh, and they're always very, very interesting and educational.
0: Well, thank you for being on as well. And we're going to be speaking about a book that was co authored um, with uh, Chuck and his partner, Leo Tillman. And the book is called Agility How to Navigate the Unknown and Seize Opportunity in a World of Disruption. And obviously, it's a It's a big thing these days, I think, uh, you know, inflection points and disruption and how business people are navigating around actually being agile. And in this situation, Uh, business leaders have been speaking about this for some time. And Chuck, I am going to let the listeners know just a tad bit about you. Um, Chuck brings over 36 years of experience leading military government and international organizations to the Tillman & Company. Prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he was the first Army officer to command the North American Aerospace Defense Command and the U.S. Northern Command, where he's recognized uh, the 1,800 person binational and joint headquarters and integrated 35 federal, state, and non-governmental organizations. So Chuck has lots of experience working with lots of people he also served as instructor and assistant professor in the Department of History at the U.S. Military Academy. As the deputy commander of Combined Joint Task Force 76, he was responsible for 18,000 troops uh, conducting combat operations in Afghanistan. As the commander of the multinational corps in Iraq, he commanded the 135,000 troops uh, conducting combat operations across the country of Iraq. His military decorations are many. Uh, He has served on several organizations, including the Council for Foreign Relations Relations, and L. Polmar Foundation and the Association for the United States Army. Chuck, it's a pleasure having you on. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware, you can find this at theagilitybook.com. There's bios there for himself and his partners and more about the Tillman Company. There's also a great video interview that's out there on YouTube that we'll put a link uh, with Leo and Chuck. And I think that's a great way for our listeners to kind of uh, ramp up and learn a little bit more about uh, being at an agile company. And, you know, let's start off there, um, Chuck. Maybe we ought to start out with defining agility. Now, you state in the book, there is no common understanding of what it means or what it takes to consistently be agile. Um, and you talk about strategic and tactical forms of agility. Um, can you comment for the listeners on the two types of agility and and really what we're talking about here this morning because when people think of agility, you know, they're probably looking at it and they're going, well I'm agile. I can move my body around and (laughs) so on. But put in the form of a business and a lot of businesses are agile and many of them are not very agile they don't move on a dime they can't make decisions quickly right
1: and uh yeah you set it up perfectly greg um you know lots of people are talking about agility and uh and i think that makes the timing of the book um useful i will tell you it took a long time to write the book so it's, it's been a couple of years and what we've done is tried to be real uh, purposeful in it. But just to show you that, uh, although lots of people are talking about agility, but there's no real common understanding. If you Google agility, uh, two thirds of the responses you come up with are uh, talking about training dogs. So uh, that's, that's not what we're gonna talk about today. And we're gonna talk about agility in the sense of more of a universal uh, requirement and really Leo and I came from two very different um, environments business environment for Leo military government and interagency environment for me but we found very very common ground on our need to define agility to to break it down to figure out what makes it tick and try to provide uh, what originally was going to be more of a theory book but what has turned into a theory and practice book on agility so from that the definition is not going to you know knock you over it's but it's uh, uh, it's quite quite straightforward uh, but we hope that it addresses what we believe to be uh, the fundamental components of agility of agility and and with the idea that it's it's really um, a a capacity that's required today, uh, just like the book says, to navigate the unknown and seize opportunity in a world of disruption. So here we go, here's a definition. It's the organizational capacity to effectively detect, assess, and respond to environmental changes in ways that are purposeful, decisive, and grounded in the will to win. And each one of those words were chosen uh, carefully, and uh, generated many, many debates between Leo, myself, and pe- other people that we ask about, uh, their ideas on agility, and uh, I, I would say, I would point to a couple of the phrases in here which are most important. Uh, this process of detecting and assessing, as well as responding to change, is critical. It's not just responding. It's it's not fight or flight. It's not, you know, reflexive. And uh, there's all kinds of words that can substitute for that flexible, nimble, um, adaptive. Uh, and, and that's really where the trouble starts. Um, so we would highlight detect, assess, and respond. And then, and then how do you respond? You respond in a purposeful, decisive manner grounded in the will to win Mm -hmm. and really and really that speaks to this idea that you know it's not like a uh school of sardines reacting to the uh you know the giant sperm whale coming by and they're you know they're just moving about uh in very rapid fashion um the purposefulness is going to be rooted to anchor points like the values the vision, the value creation uh, philosophy of an organization. Uh, Decisive means that uh, in a timely manner, in a manner in which uh, the response will create an effect, will either take advantage of risk uh, as an opportunity or to mitigate risk as a response to threat, but always the will to win. How would
0: you... um, I know we'll get to strategic and tactical sure. here in a second, mm-hmm. but what kind of sure. pops up for me, <clears throat> I look at companies that go through chaos and out of chaos comes order. Uh, mm-hmm. In most cases, either chaos or you go to degrading. A good example mm-hmm. of that, that, that I can uh, attest to, or at least talk to would be mm-hmm. what happened at Volkswagen. Um, right. You know, here you got a company that got fined a billion dollars because they did a bad thing. Right. Um, right. You know, they th- thought they pulled the wool over the government's eyes on the diesel cars and all the other ones they were making in the emissions control. And now this year are going to release mm-hmm. four electric vehicles saying, right. okay, look, our CEO got it. Uh, that was a big hit. We, we were in complete chaos during that period of time. What would you say about this whole concept of chaos and order and becoming agile?"
1: well i would say that um uh, first of all it's senior leader business uh to ensure that uh when they take risk uh obviously volkswagen took uh, a risk uh with its brand its reputation uh when they decided to uh you know take some kind of regulatory uh shortcut and uh and it tells you a number of things, a number of things. One is, um, there, I am not a student of Volkswagen, but I will tell you, apparently, uh, they had a sufficiently um, uh, connected and loyal workforce. They had uh, ways to communicate up and down and across the organization. They were able to um shift to other projects that they were working on I mean they just didn't come up with electric cars uh, you know in the in the midst of a disaster I mean they had they had done some planning some what-if planning or what's next planning that positioned them to respond in a purposeful way to restore their brand to get back in compliance and and they were also in line with what the major trend in uh, automotive design was, and so I would say it was an agile response yeah uh, but it's but it's not something that they just happened to you know they were able to juke to the you know the government to the left and then juke them to the right and then you know continue on their merry way um, there but was it a also lot.
0: it also ended up for them, and I think in a very positive light, I think Absolutely. that was my point was. Chaos Mm -hmm. can bring this order, can bring this agility, can bring this ability to react purposefully with meaning, Mm -hmm. focus, and with the will to win, right? And you and your co-authors state that to thrive in the years ahead, all organizations, both public and private, will need to make a concerted and ongoing investment in the knowledge, capabilities, processes, and cultures that foster a distinctive an all too rare organization in the quality of agility. How do you recommend that an organization start to create this agile culture and environment? I mean, it's one thing to talk about the word agility. Anybody can throw it out there, Uh, but to really embed this in the DNA, to make this happen within like you work with 135,000 people, 18,000 people Um, easier said than done. Uh, the, the question is, what are the ways that someone like yourself who, you know, was in the military uh, was able to create agile organizations?
1: Well, you got me really excited about the last example, Greg. I just have to close up with that one and then move forward. The uh, with, with Volkswagen, it's clear that the senior leadership, while a mistake was made, and uh, uh, a risk was taken that uh, turned out to be um, potentially catastrophic. Um, they saw an opportunity in that, and they saw an opportunity because they were a forward-thinking, will-to-win organization. That that I always taught my organizations that you know don't panic. You know, every day in combat, something's going to go wrong. You've heard Murphy's law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's combat every day.
0: Oh yeah, yeah yeah and
1: but in every one of those situations, when uh, you have a culture in your organization, an agile culture culture, an agile mindset, uh, it is possible to not just for the senior leaders to see the opportunities, but for opportunities to either be seen. But at least be understood when a company or a uh, military organization sees the need to uh, make a change, and that's where we come to this question of strategic versus agile, uh, or strategic versus tactical agility. It's not enough for the senior leaders say, "Oh my goodness, uh, uh, we we've detect detected this change in the environment. We've assessed it. It is really dangerous. We we have a problem here." And then to decide to act purposefully, um, but it's not enough for the senior leadership to all decide that and pat each other on the back and go off to the to the next golf game. I mean, the organization has to trust the senior leadership that the uh, you know changes that uh, that they that they make or the steps that they take to respond uh, are good for the organization. That uh, they all play a critical role in it. And so I'll go back to something Napoleon said. He said, the moral is to physical is three is to one. I really believe this, the organizational setting, the what we call the agility setting, the culture and mindset in the organization that encourages agility, where there's trust up and down, uh, either the chain of command or in the business hierarchy, uh, is essential, this connective tissue between The strategic agility and the tactical agility is required for a company to not just survive. Because Volkswagen didn't just survive; it's it's positioned itself to continue to thrive.
0: Right. Um, Right. And that that was kind of my point with that. And you guys have um, you have created a framework for agility that you present in the book. And you you both talk about absolute and relative risks in terms of. Mm -hmm what are called three dynamic and interconnected drivers for right. the listeners i think it this part is kind of really important what are those three dynamic and interconnected drivers that make this up
1: right we we think that uh risk and how you deal with risk is an essential part of creating agile leaders and agile organizations and uh, when I was a combatant commander, when I was the NORAN commander, the US NORTHCOM commander, uh, I would always have to talk to the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in terms of risk, risk to mission, risk to force. And in our you know, upcoming decision-making, how we saw the environment, et cetera. And, and so for me, the best way to think about it and to understand the interdependencies upon a portfolio of risks was a real simple equation and it's not arithmetic equation, it's a relationship equation where, uh, and we have that in the book, we say risk equals vulnerability times likelihood uh, times consequences. And it's really important to understand the dynamic relationship between vulnerability, likelihood and consequences. And we don't think of risk as essentially negative. We think of it as uh, neutral, really, and that there's just as big a risk. In fact, there's a bigger risk of not taking action than there is in in, uh, taking the wrong actions. And so as you think about it, um, the simplest example I can give is nuclear deterrence. Um, When we would talk about uh, Russia or China and, um, you know, the... Risks that we had involved with them, we would think about with nuclear weapons, you would say, well, what's your vulnerability? It's almost absolute. I mean, there's, except for uh, the limited uh, missile defense that we have against uh, rogue states like North Korea, for large states, uh, we are uh, hugely vulnerable. And, but the likelihood, you know, we've been able to drive the likelihood down. With our own strategic deterrence and that's that's the the, the whole uh, operational or strategic calculus of uh, mutually assured destruction Uh, and so when we would talk about it we would say wow it's really it's really cost a lot to build those those subs and those missiles and those bombers but since your vulnerability is almost absolute and the consequences are complete of nuclear war are completely unacceptable, then what you have to do is you look across your equation, you need to drive that likelihood to zero. Does that make sense to you?
0: Of course. I mean, look, it's a, it's like you said at the beginning, It there's the risk of doing nothing, right? right. Or the risk of doing something and the risk of doing something is far less than the risk of just sitting and doing nothing. So, right. you know, and, and,
1: and, and there's, that and there's that makes
0: Complete so, sense. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, but, you know, and even more comp- complex, you know, strategic questions than that, both for, for any competitive environment, um, it's it's thinking through those relationships and and the levers that you have to pull the can i should i reduce vulnerability here is that the right answer should i reduce likelihood should i reduce consequences should i go ahead and take risk with vulnerability accept risk with vulnerability and and so um that just helps for me that was a senior leader equation that helped me describe um, the interplay of risk across a portfolio of risks and, uh, and determine what was relative and what was absolute. So I I appreciate the fact that you've got that.
0: Do you ever remember a guy by the name of Buckminster Fuller? No. Buckminster Fuller was one of the great inventors. You can look him up. Um, And he came up with the geodesic dome. Mm-hmm. That always used to say, and this is a comment commentary to just the amount of money we spend to protect our country, right? right? If we spend less money, the kind of money that we spend on weaponry versus just creating a world of peace and humanity, <laughs> imagine what we could do. Now, that's really right. thinking out of the box, right? right? It's like... Right. Okay, um, could we get to a point where we wouldn't ever need that? Right. And that yeah. is that's a that's one for somebody to kind of put in their mind. And he had a, a definite saying and I kind of messed it up, but weaponry was his big statement. Um right. now you you say and your co-author tell a great story that kind of exemplifies this Bear Stearns mm-hmm. and the CEO Jimmy Kane and a great right. lessons about taking risk. I think it's a great story to let our listeners in on. And this misunderstanding about risk, because you were just talking about risks there. I mean, the risk of a nuclear war versus the risk of not having it, the risk of being able to deploy, uh, you know, enemy attack and and subvert uh, that kind of thing. So we're sitting there like, okay, we've got a button, you've got a button. We can push ours first or you can push yours either way. Uh, There could be a nuclear disaster here. But in this case, this gentleman didn't really look at risk very properly did he
1: no and what he didn't um and, and i will tell you that this is a particular example that that leo is most comfortable uh delving into in some depth he was he was there he watched it happen and uh and he's talked to all the executives involved and everybody is happy for lessons to be learned from that financial crisis of 2007 and eight didn't there so well um, in our book what we would refer to is that there was a dot connecting problem across the portfolio of risks there and in the end the conclusion is that Bear Stearns wasn't the company they thought they were and we have a chapter it's called what well, business are you in uh, it, it's like in the military um, you know, we're going to have a conversation about mutually assured destruction It's very uncomfortable. No, no one, no one's happy to do it, but, but that's the business we're in, right? Defending the country, driving that likelihood to zero, of, uh, you know, uh, existential threats to the company well, or the country. Well, they had an existential threat brewing, uh, for the, for Bear Stearns and, uh, they did not see those relationships, um, across their portfolio of risks and and uh, the famous line there um for for uh the ceo was that guys don't worry the crisis uh, looks like it's looming out there but we're well positioned because we're not uh we're not uh, we're a moving business not a storage business referring to the type of transactions that they did when in fact uh across the breadth and and through the depth of the organization bear stearns had accepted all kinds of risks that that greatly increased uh the likelihood that they would be subjected to the same same existential threats to the uh, 2007 uh, housing bubble collapse and all the other parts of the financial crisis because they in fact were a storage company. They were a storage company of all kinds of illiquid um, uh, assets, uh, like derivatives, that that made them hugely exposed. And the company and the company subsequently failed. So um, that's well, you why refer, think, You
0: referred to this ahead. as risk radar. What what? Right. How does an organization actually? You know, you said you talked about connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. state the developing effective using risk radar requires specific collective skill set, well-crafted right. organization, division of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the division of labor and I get the skill set. Right. Well, how do mm-hmm. you help companies to be able to predict that risk more effectively? Let's face it. Actuaries and insurance companies are great risk predictors. Um right. Uh, there's many uh, companies today that are looking at our environmental disasters, especially property and casualty insurance companies. And Mm -hmm. they're saying, hey, we can predict the future. And it doesn't look good for the rising tides in Florida, right? Right. So instead of your premiums being, you know, $1,000, dollars they are going to be $3,000, we might be able to incur that loss. Um, Hurricanes, all this kind of stuff. But you know, when you look at it, those are mathematicians that are sitting up there and predicting that. The math isn't always there. Right.
1: Well, um, the risk radar is, is a tool. So when I said we went from theory to practice, what we wanted to do was entice you with a, a practice that Leo has used with other companies in the consulting world in helping them visualize uh their portfolio risks and you really divide we have divided it into kind of two areas of risk and then uncertainty where you know risks are kind of known known uh threats or opportunities things like financial strategic uh, maybe cyber legal regulatory um risks in volkswagen i'm sure uh had within their their risk department uh, and we're we're mitigating, but what we would argue is that unless you array those risks in a way that allows you to see and and understand connected uh, uh, portfolios of risk, interconnectedness, interdependence, um, you know how how something in the financial affects something in the strategic, how something in the regulatory uh, impacts something in the legal uh etc cetera, etc cetera, how political might get involved unless you can visualize that and then uh think about that moving forward uh you're going to you're going to make mistakes like bear stern's made and then we have the whole other area called uncertainty which are unknowns unknowns that 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 might have an impact things like the technology biosphere mm-hmm. terrorism geopolitics those kinds of things and And those are areas where you just may need to invest in what we call a fight for risk intelligence, which is invest in domain experts that can that can sit down with you and in your planning tell you um here are possible outcomes and here are some things that if if you think you know that there are possibilities that if you think may come to pass, they could be existential or or an opportunity that could allow you to change the, uh, impact the market space and gain a, gain an advantage. And I want to continue to go back to that because sometimes when you talk about risk, you can get sucked into the whole, um, you know, negative aspect of, you know, I need to hunker down in the defense and defend myself when, well, when there's really,
0: opportunity, there's opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. The always. Absolutely. I, I look at I just did an interview with Rita McGrath on her book, seeing around corners and she talks about them as inflection points. Now the, mm-hmm. the point there is, you know, look every company that you can think about uh, Gillette with razors, look at Harry now is on the internet and, and you know, Gillette's lost a big market share of razors. It, right. The list goes on and on. Microsoft didn't jump into the internet business. So Google sure. beat them out. I mean, you example after example after example of people who didn't see the inflection point. They didn't right. see the turning. Now you say, well, was there risk for us to go into that potentially? But what was the reward, right? Right. And, and, and I, was, think I think that's what right. you're saying. What? And
1: what was the what was the risk of not um, right understanding <laughs> understanding the inflection point? And I thought that. You know, our two examples, IMAX and Western Union, were great examples where and sometimes these aren't these aren't things that happen quarter to quarter, I guess is one of the most important points to make. Uh, you know, you think. So this is kind of counterintuitive, really. You think agility is all about these, you know, instantaneous reflexes and those. No, 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 no. There is an enormous amount. Not, there is investment and work to be done. In looking at your risk radar, connecting dots, thinking about the uncertainty, uh, understanding what are the drivers of risk with the uncertainty, and what are the opportunities. Or you will be behind. You will be defensive. And if you are defensive, you are going to fall behind and lose.
0: Well, that's a great statement in itself because, Chuck, being on the offense is usually moving forward. Being on the defensive is retracting. Um, right. We don't want contraction. Obviously right. there are times to contract, but for the most part, you, you need to be expanding. You need to have an open right. consciousness here and, and you explain, and I think this is a great setup for this. You refer to it as an operationalized strategic vision and mm-hmm. how an organization would create this long-term value with this uh operationalized strategic vision process. Right. Briefly for our listeners, what is that and you know how would that help a company to to make sure that they had this operationalized strategic vision.
1: Yeah, it for for us this is again part of this idea that this is a theory and practice book and so we want to offer this up as a way to uh, put the relationships between a lot of these concepts that we've we've talked about in perspective and and so in our oper, you know our idea about operationally strategic vision is how, how do you articulate the vision, the strategy for the business, describe the business, what is its business philosophy, what business are we in? Give guidance uh, set out. Uh, what the decision-making process is, how it relates to risk, what's the operating philosophy. In my view, uh, the leadership and culture of the organization uh, is probably one of the more critical things. With, per- with you know, at the very top, purpose, purpose, that's that anchor point. And, I mean, the example you brought up today, Volkswagen knew what their purpose was as a company. They knew what kind of business they were in. They knew what their purpose was. Um they made a mistake when they're in their decision-making and risk uh, uh factoring, um, but they uh, had positioned themselves to turn that mistake into an opportunity because of their purpose and because of how they they had approached operationalized strategic vision. And so it's just you know the way that we describe in the book. It's a it's a way to put all the pieces together and understand the relationships between them, and and then uh, you can translate into well, do I mean, you know what would it be helpful to change my business model in a way that that uh, kind of reflects some of these concepts, or or do I feel strong across the board here, or maybe uh maybe I, I haven't done as good a job hanging on to our uh, our uh, you know, leadership and culture through the depth of the organization. It's one thing we haven't talked about is, um, you know, th- this idea of of will to win and uh, making a purposeful decision and, and then how do you get the whole organization to buy in and go with you uh, and take the risk with you. Um, that's all about leadership and culture.
0: And and so, it's also it's also about this trust element that you bring yep. up in the book and I and I sure. and I, it's trust and accountability let's face it yes. in the military mm-hmm. it is a lot about accountability you know if you say you're going to do something do it right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right so you stayed on the battlefield be it warfare government or business trust is a non-negotiable requirement for winning and persevering under the most dire of circumstances I would agree. Right. Trust, as much as anything, is so important. If you would, yeah. speak with the yeah. listeners about sure. accountability and this intrinsic dimension of accountability to create trust. Because look, really, yeah. if I'm in the battlefield, the only thing I have is trust that the other guy's going to have my back, right? Yeah. If I'm in exactly. the battlefield at work, the same kind of battlefield, just maybe not with weapons, but you know, uh, the other guy's got to have my back. I got to be accountable. So speak with the listeners because this is an important point in the book.
1: Yeah. Um, and for me, it, it, it was one of the, the critical uh, funda- foundational pillars for agility. Um, trust, uh, in my view, is transactional. And uh, it's a risk transaction between the, the boss and the subordinate. And it's a it's a bond of accountability between uh you know higher and lower, between strategic and tactical. And and the person that needs to make the first step is the boss and in that risk transaction. And the and the simplest of trust transaction is I'm going to empower you with some authority or with some resources or with uh some guidance and uh i'm going to trust you to execute and you're going to go out there and execute within our operational and strategic vision within what we would call the military commander's intent and and if you make a mistake and if it was well meaning and in line with our intent and it just didn't work out correctly um you're going to trust me not to chop your head off or to uh uh denigrate you in some way or to put you at risk personally or professionally and that is the simplest of of trust transactions but it's so important because if you want your organization to win they have to the organization wins at the edge of the organization and somehow trust has to get to the edge of the organization it is not sufficient for it to reach down to middle management, it has to reach all the way through the organization. And so, we advocate the, the military philosophy of mission command, which is which we think is applicable across any organization. Which is really based on centralized planning at the strategic level and decentralized execution at the tactical level. Mm-hmm. And, and for that to work properly, for that to work effectively and purposefully. There has to be a high degree of trust uh, and accountability. Think of this. So I'm sitting there in Baghdad and I've got 135,000 folks out there in 25, 30-man, 100-person organizations, and I'm trusting them to execute complex military operations every day think how powerful it is if i can trust them to do that and that they trust me uh to empower them with the resources and with the authority and with the guidance and then trust them to execute and that if they do their best i'm going to underwrite a certain percentage of mistakes because the outcome of a uh, a giant organization all trying to execute uh within the commander's intent is so powerful you you can't you can't uh uh avoid you know the the uh the speed and uh, uh success that you're going to gain from that kind of an organization and that kind of an environment so so that's the way we think about trust and we think that applies to businesses as well. We think we talk about that in organizations like IMAX and Western Union, large organizations, which had to make large changes and required uh, their employees at the edges of the organization to trust with them, for them to feel accountable for getting the mission done and for the bosses to feel accountable for ensuring that the the employees were empowered to do so. So that's that accountability relationship to trust that I think you were
0: talking about. And it's this uh, interconnectedness of trust. Look, if you're the commander and then you've got all of your senior officers and then all of the enlisted people that are beneath them, Mm -hmm. whatever that structure looks like, right? The hierarchy of the structure, it really starts at the top. And, you know, someone like you with 135,000 soldiers, people, commanders, people that had to report to you. Very important how it's executed, but more importantly was the trust they had in you, and that's an accolade to you as well, uh, to be able to do something like that. that there's very few people you know, uh, on the planet that can say that. So accolades to you, uh, Chuck, and what you've done, and for your service to our country. Now, with that being said, you're trying to serve a different audience today, and that's mm-hmm. an audience that uh, either makes products or services to sure uh, distributed to thousands of people. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. want to make mistakes. What would you uh, tell our listeners as our closing question here to impart on them uh, how it relates to building an agile business and the importance that having an agile business is, and not only being successful monetarily, but being successful within a thriving culture that enjoys Mm -hmm. working for them that has a purpose that has meaning and has value. Um, I think it's Richard Branson always says is the first person, your customer isn't the most important person. It's, it's the employee that works for you. And if you can help those employees, um, feel good about working for you, you're going to have a successful, and I believe him a hundred percent. I mean, look at, he's quite a success himself. So he does not focus on the customer. He focuses on the employee. Right.
1: I I think that, um, there's, uh, there's really uh, no more important task for a boss than to make sure that, uh, as many employees as he or she can touch with the vision, the mission, and the priorities of the organization and have them understand their contribution, have them achieve some, uh, feel some accountability for mission accomplishment uh, and to feel that they are, uh, they have a purpose in achieving the company's uh, vision and mission. I don't think there's any more powerful thing a, a boss can do. And to that end, you know, my advice is immediately add to your lexicon if you're a, a, a boss uh, two words uh, or two phrases when you're dealing with your employees. Thank you and what do you think? <laughs> what do you think and thank you go a long ways in any organization. And it really speaks to how you deal with the edge of the organization and how you empower them. To be part of the team, and uh, and so um, if your if your business relies on client relationships, that's fine. But you start with uh, how are my people uh, understanding uh, my intent for dealing with the customers, and and why is that so important? There's a there's a leadership book out it says start with why, and you can never spend enough time telling folks why we're doing the things we're doing and why our priorities are our priorities. I think that when you want to have an agile organization, agility starts, it starts at the top with the, the, the vision and the nature of the business you're in, but it is accomplished at the edge of the organization. To that end, my favorite picture, and I'm back to a military example, so I apologize, but it's still my favorite picture. It's Dwight Eisenhower the night before the invasion of Normandy. Now, he's got a lot to worry about. He's got a horrible weather report. He's got hundreds of thousands of troops loaded on boats. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. sick. They're tossing. They're turning. And uh, he's got uh, kings and prime ministers and presidents and everybody on pins and needles. The fate of the free world is, is in his hands and in his decision. All the decision authority has been given to him. That night, he is down talking to individual paratroopers in the 101st Airborne Division that are going to jump in that night, telling them how important they are to the outcome of entering you know, Nazi-occupied Europe and beginning uh, the march again, the march to the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where he found his place, where he needed to be. He needed, he felt he needed to be at the edge of the organization, organization, touching as many folks as he could that were going to make the difference. You know, you, generals and CEOs, uh, make plans and they make charts and they make policies and proclamations. Um, but, uh, once you're into execution, uh, they can only goof it up. Uh, that's what we always say in the military. You know, once you're executing, generals can only goof it up. So uh, well, you re- you're really counting, about, counting on the I, edge to, to get would that straight. I agree
0: with you that at the edge of the organization, any organization is where the pedal hits the metal because it's those people that are basically giving of their brawn, their time, their intelligence, their ability to execute on whatever order it is and to do it with efficiency and to do it with the purpose in mind. In other words, in this case, Dwight Eisenhower was to create a free world again, right? To to take this occupied space that Hitler had. And I mean, very important uh, uh, battle and obviously a big risk for uh, Dwight Eisenhower. But again, we talked about that risk. It was a calculated risk. He knew that he had to take it regardless of the weather. Uh, and knew that it was important to every like you mentioned all the the kings and people that were watching him right so i think that's a great example and it's a great way to leave this and i i think for our listeners um this book will open up your eyes uh, maybe to a new world of how to approach your business at being more agile and what are some of the small things you could do uh, to create an agile business and today um, we've been on the line with um, General Charles Jacoby and Leo Tolman have written this book called Agility, How to Navigate the Unknown and Seize Opportunity in a World of Disruption. Obviously, we know about the disruption part. The key is how do we um, become more agile? And in this case, look at the opportunities that exist from this. Um, disrupting environments actually have a lot more opportunities than they have risk. the way is to figure out how to take advantage of those. Chuck, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. Speaking about your new book, Agility, we'll have links to theagilitybook.com, which is where you can learn more about Chuck and Leo uh, and their mission here to get this information out. We'll also have a link to Amazon so that you can pick up and buy the book. It's been a pleasure having you on this morning, uh, Chuck, and uh, I wish both you and Leo well with uh, this book, and also spreading your word about how agility can help people reassess the risk, uh, take advantage of the opportunities, and build agile organizations.
1: Thanks, Greg. It was uh, it was my pleasure.